bow our heads. Uh, Father, as we open your word, um, give us receptive hearts. Help me to teach it rightly and well. As always, give the hearers discernment that they might hold on to what is good. Lord, guard us from error, uh, lead us in the right way, and we, uh, we ask your help in these things, in the name of Jesus, amen. A couple of uh, summers ago, our three adult children and their families uh, spent a week at a terrific condo near Destin, Florida, that part of that 100-mile stretch Pensacola to Panama City, they, they call it the Emerald Coast, everyone else calls it the Redneck Riviera, you know, it's just, it's, you know it, you know it, but what a, what a great time we had, and, and probably we had the family, you know, our three adult children, and, and you know, we had a, a son and a daughter by marriage, and, a, and their, you know, their five grandchildren, you know, their children, our grandchildren, and maybe that's made it best for Robin and I, you know, just having our family and their families. But just, it's just a great eating well, whether we're eating out or, or uh, steak and shrimp on the, on the grill at the condo or even we had a rain, the rain day, we had a rain day and it was great staying in and playing card games with the, board games with the grandkids and, and everything. And almost every single day, almost every single day, riding the golf carts to the beach and, you know, reading a good, sitting under the umbrella or out in the sun, reading a good book or watching the grandkids play in the surf or, you know, uh, whatever we did, whatever we did. But just as, it's just not knowing or caring what day it was, you know, if even for a week, you know, just, it was just terrific. And um, how, we, how we love it, right? Our vacations by the seaside. I, I'm pretty much, I'm at the umbrella, you know, even before I got ill, I, I was at the umbrella and book stage, you know. But, uh, but, and you might be, you know, the football and the frisbee and, the, you know, the surfing or wind sailing and snorkeling, diving, but whatever, whatever the attraction is, we just love our vacations at the beach. And that's why a great many of us feel a, a, there's a sense of disappointment when we read in Revelation 21.1, in the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be any sea. You got a revelation? Look at that. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And you think, what? No Destin, no Myrtle Beach, no pounding waves, you know, that soothing rhythm of the pounding, you know, the feeling of your bare feet on the sand, you know, or the, the surf washing the sand away from under your feet, all the sunsets and sunrises, watching an approaching thunderstorm, you know, all of that stuff, and this, you know, you read that and you think, and this is supposed to be like, this is supposed to be heaven, this is supposed to be the forever, you know, what, the, what theologians call the eternal state, I've been calling the forever future, the Bible calls the new heavens and new earth, this is, and you know, so like, like what, 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 what gives? And I know, and it's kind of a, a bummer for some. And I know this is so because people ask me. 
they ask me about it and has that nagging sense of disappointment about it. Well, uh, I'm looking at today is kind of house cleaning. Last house cleaning, we've been in Revelation 21, 1 through 8, several weeks, and I, this is house cleaning. This is, we were moving on from next week. It's going to be something completely different, not to new heavens, new earth, not Revelation 21, 1 through 8. But, uh, but I haven't addressed this. We haven't talked about it. And people you know, repeatedly ask about this. What about this not being any C in the, in the new earth? And I want to give you today, I want to tell you three reasons why I remain hopeful about the possibility of vacations at the beach in the new earth. Even though the verse says what it says, and as the sermon title says, that's a, I think that's the longest sermon title I've ever given, why I'm afraid to ask. <laughs> so, let me jump in. First, here's the first reason why, why I remain hopeful about the possibility of vac- vacations at the beach. The unexpected placement of the statement about the sea in Revelation 21.1 suggests a symbolic meaning rather than simply a topographical one. Let me say it again. The unexpected placement of the statement about the sea suggests a symbolic meaning rather than simply a topographical one. a central feature of apocalyptic literature um, is its highly symbolic nature. Uh, and, and that's what Revelation is. It's, it's, a, it's apocalyptic. There's no controversy about that. It's apocalyptic literature. Uh, the, the whole book is presented to us as a vision given to John. It's a, it's a vision given to John. And at least at some points, it's absolutely clear when we read it that, that John... What John describes, things that he sees in his visions, at least this is at some points, it's absolutely clear (coughs) to the reader, to you when you read it, that it should not be taken as a literal description of a present reality or even a future reality, but as a symbol for something else. Let me give you a couple of examples. One, how John describes his vision of Christ in, in chapter 19. Look at this couple of verses here. This is Christ. This is John's vision of Christ. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now, this is not how John saw Jesus when he saw the resurrected Jesus. Uh, you know, there was no... John saw, he interacted with the risen Jesus. He did not have a sharp sword coming out from his mouth. You know, it, it, the gospel writers would have said something about that, don't you think? But in Revelation 19, in this verse, he's described in his vision of the glorified Lord, and he appears to him with his sword coming out of his mouth, which... With, and the striking down the nations. What's it suggest? That he will strike down the nations that gather against him for war, with a word. With a word. He won't need a sword that he'd weld like this. He just, with a word, he brings them to an end. 
because only has to speak. And it also says something of his divinity, doesn't it? When God speaks, things happen. Genesis. He speaks and there is. Let there be light and there's light. And the, and the word of Jesus has divine weight to create or to destroy, to give life, to take it away. You can take that one down. But just another one. I don't have this one on the screen for you. There's really too many references today to have it, all, all of them up there. But uh, Revelation chapter 5. Once again, it's Christ. It's, it's being described. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes. Now, does Jesus in his resurrected body take the form of a lamb with seven, you know, as if it had been slain, whatever you want to picture there, with seven horns and seven eyes? Of course not. Of course not. But in this vision, this vision of Christ, Revelation chapter 5, what's it, what, is it, what does it mean? Jesus as a lamb. He's the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. It's Jesus as our sacrifice. That's what's being, that's the meaning. That's what's being pictured here. That's what, that's what we should get from it. Seven horns, perhaps, I would, universal reign, seven, this number of completeness. Universal reign of, of Christ. Seven eyes, omniscience, omnipresence. So perhaps we have something like that in Revelation 21.1 where we see this a strange, out-of-place statement that there will be, apparently out-of-place statement that there will no longer be any sea. And why, is it, why am I saying out-of-place? If it were merely, I th it seems out-of-place if it were merely a description of topography, you know, like what's, you know, just a little detail about the new earth. There's no sea. Um, in, in other words, if it were just about topography, why doesn't go, John go on here and tell us about the forests or the, the mountains or the, and the hills and the valleys and the, you know, all the things that could be said about the new earth in terms of just the topography? Well, maybe... We don't get any of that because it isn't about topography, at least not primarily. Maybe the sea is a symbol for something else, like a sword coming from Jesus' mouth, <laughs> like a lamb is a symbol for Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross. Like seven eyes would speak of uh, his omniscience. Like seven horns would speak of his uh, universal rule. So we can be forgiven. Maybe perhaps I should say, I could be forgiven. <laughs> I should be forgiven uh, for at least suspecting a symbolic meaning here. But if there is a symbolic meaning, what might the sea or the absence of the sea be symbolic of. And that leads to my second reason for being hopeful about beach vacations in the new heaven, new earth.
Here it is. The sea in the Bible is often, not always, as far as I can see, but is often a symbol for moral chaos, for disorder, and for God's judgment on it. The, the sea is often a symbol for moral chaos, disorder, and God's judgment on it. And I think we can see it as early as Genesis chapter 1. Now you don't have to go, I'll, I'll take some time to explain it, and you don't have to, to go with this. Uh, you know, you, I don't know what you'll think of it, but I think we see it as early as, as this, as Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, formless, void, darkness, and I'm going to argue the deep are not neutral terms in the Bible, but rather negative ones. They hint that something has gone wrong, that something isn't quite right. Uh, that the, the phrase without form and void, for example, without form and void, or uh, the, uh, yes, without form and void in, in English Standard Version there. Tohu babohu in, uh, in uh, Hebrew. It appears, that phrase like that, it's only one other place in the Bible where it clearly describes the terrible result of God's judgments. Jeremiah chapter 4, we read, I don't have it, to, you're not going to see it, but just listen to it. We read a prophecy of God's judgment on Judah if they won't turn from their wickedness. And just listen to, listen to the language. It's going to sound like God's judgment. And it should, because that's what it is. Crash, this is 420. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment. Verse 23, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. There's our phrase. And to the heavens, when they had no light, I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking. All the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert. And all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before His fierce anger. You may have been done some studying on Genesis 1 or heard some studies on reading on Genesis 1. And you may know the Schofield Reference Bible uses the same observation about formless and void as part of its defense of what's called the, the gap theory of Genesis 1. I'm not going to ex explain it now. But I want you to know that I am not arguing for the gap theory. That's not what I believe about Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. But I, but I am saying that those words, and especially, especially that phrase together, formless and void, those are not neutral, morally neutral terms, but negative ones that suggest God's judgment. Just like the next, phrase, the next word in there, darkness. Darkness was over the face of the deep. Well, you know, you, you don't, if you just even have a cursory familiarity with the Bible, you know that very often darkness is a, 
symbol of evil and spiritual ignorance. And light is a symbol of truth and, uh, and insight, knowledge, true knowledge of God. You know this. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good. John, John chapter 1, which really it recapitulates Genesis chapter 1. Let me read some of, of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the, you remember what it says? Light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You think that's just about where God said, let there be light, and there was? Or is there something more there? That light does not come overcome. That light overcomes darkness. Darkness doesn't overcome light. Well, you know, it's a physical reality, right? You turn on the light, you know, it's dark in the room, you turn on the light, and then the light where the darkness flees, right? There's no equivalent on the other side. There's no dark bulb that makes a, you know, you flip on the dark bulb and then it turns the room dark. No, it doesn't work that way. Darkness does not overcome light. Light overcomes darkness. But we're, so it's, we're talking about something more than just God said, let there be light, and there was light. So you look at all these loaded terms. Now I'm going to move on from this. It's not just Genesis 1. Please don't think that the only reason I think that, uh, uh, that the sea is, uh, is kind of a, is a symbol for something evil in the, in the Scriptures because it has peculiar ideas about Genesis chapter 1. That's not the case. But I do look at Genesis 1. You see all these loaded terms. Formless, void, darkness, and the deep. The waters covering the earth. A place that God has judged is waiting for God to redeem. Well, what, what might have happened to bring the earth into such a place like that? Well, once again, we're going to, you know, in Genesis, we're going to come across a talking snake, right? Uh, right? And we suspect immediately it was some, it's not just a talking snake. You have to get to the last book of the Bible to absolutely nail this down, but Revelation 12 does nail it down. Revelation 12, 9. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. Isn't that curious? He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And when he makes his appearance in Genesis... That's already happened. He's already been cast to the earth. He's already the enemy of God. He's already the enemy of all mankind. So my, my, my point is that the deep, the water, speaks of a moral chaos and disorder, God's judgment on it. All right, leaving aside Genesis 1. In Genesis 6, the, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And you know God judges. How does God judge? How does God judge? He brings a flood of waters to destroy the wicked. 
For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. That's how he does it. Exodus chapter 14. You can take that down. Exodus chapter 14. What is the instrument of God's judgment upon the Egyptians at the time of the Exodus? It's the red what? The Red Sea. And, and what a picture. We won't turn there, but what a, what a marvelous, terrific picture of God's salvation and of God's judgment. Just like the children of Israel, we want to get to the other side, right? And by God's mercy, His power, His grace, the waters of God's righteous judgment against sin separate for us. And just like the children of Israel, we pass through it. And, and it's, in Exodus says, they didn't even get their feet muddy. That water doesn't, the water doesn't touch them at all, right? They walk through as on dry land. And we do too. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And then you know, of course, in Exodus, the Egyptians try to follow the Israelites, right? They try to follow them through, but without God, without faith in God, without being the recipient of His promises, right? Not only that, at enmity with God, fighting God's people, and what happens? The, red, the, the sea, in God's judgment, crashes in on them and drowns and destroys them. The Red Sea is a place of judgment and deliverance from it. Moving on. In Daniel chapter 2, the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar is given a vision from God of successive Gentile powers governing the world. And their empires identifiable in history, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. But in Nebuchadnezzar's vision that he's given, God gave him the vision that those four successive kingdoms appear as a great uh, image of man. You remember the head of gold and the breast and arms of of silver and so forth, all the way down to the legs of iron. It's magnificent. It's magnificent. In Daniel chapter 7, the same empire, there was really the same content except more, is given not to the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar, but to the man of God, Daniel. But in the vision given to Daniel, they're not a magnificent statue, but they're four grotesque beasts. And guess where they come from? Daniel 7, 2, I saw in my vision by night, behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea. That's where they came from. Very similarly, 
the beast in Revelation 13. The beast. You remember reading about the beast. He comes up out of the sea. Look at that. I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Isn't that curious? Revelation 17, the great, you don't have, you're not going to see this uh, scripture, but 17, uh, verse 1, I think, the, the great harlot, the great prostitute is seated on many waters. Revelation 15, we see uh, 24 elders standing on, the, on a sea of glass. Standing on a sea of glass, or crystal of crystal. At least in King James New American Standard says standing on. NAV and ESV has them standing beside the sea. Actually, it could grammatically it could go either way. And I can only imagine that maybe the translators, uh, the you know NIV and NAS thought, uh, well, it'd be more natural to see them standing beside the sea instead of on it. But maybe we shouldn't be looking for something natural. Maybe something supernatural is intended, like Jesus walking on the water. <laughs> like Jesus with a word calming the raging sea. Uh, something supernatural, like the, like the children of Israel passing through the Red Sea as on dry land. Uh, like the church or the elders representing the church standing on a sea made calm. The moral chaos gone. The judgment over. So when the scripture mentions the sea, as it does in Revelation 21.1, I am alerted to the possibility that there might be something more here than what uh, doesn't, in this case, doesn't meet the eye. <laughs> no see. Just like my curiosity is piqued, and I hope yours too, when, you re when darkness and light come up in the Bible. Like, like Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night, right? Nicodemus comes to to Jesus by night, John chapter 3. The very next chapter, John chapter 4, the woman at the well comes to him at high noon. And it's high noon. It says the sixth hour of the day. They dated from dawn, like 6 a.m. noon. Nicodemus, the, the one who should know, <laughs> comes by night. The woman you know, the, you know the, the woman who shouldn't, doesn't know anything about anything, she, she comes in the day. Or the trials of Jesus taking place at night, the illegal trials of Jesus. Or darkness falling upon the earth at, his, at Jesus' crucifixion. Ah, in other words, did these things happen? Yes. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. But is John's intent in pointing that out just as it just happened to be night? Just a little detail he's throwing in? Or should we see something about the contrast between Nicodemus and the woman at the well? I, I think when you read things like that, God is telling us more here than just whether it was day or night. We're not, not, we're not just talking about what time it is, but we're talking about good and evil 
We're talking about spiritual insight, spiritual knowledge, and, and uh, ignorance. And when I read that there will be no sea in the new heavens and new earth, I think in the same way, I think, is the point here that there, just the detail, that there will be no large body of salt water? Or is it that there will be no moral chaos? There will be no more spiritual disorder. There will be no opposition to God. There will be no more judgment upon sin because the judgment has passed and will be gone. Because, and sin is no more. Now let me give you the third reason why I remain hopeful about vacations at the beach in the new heavens and new earth. And it's this, that throughout history, the sea has been seen as a place of danger, of foreboding, of separation, of death. And this is apart from any thought of biblical symbolism. It is apart from biblical symbolism. You know, it has nothing to do with biblical symbolism. This is just the reality of it. The sea was where you sent your loved ones off and maybe you never saw them again. You don't even, if, if they perish at sea, you don't even get a, a body to bury. They're just gone. The sea was where giant sea creatures live that can eat you. It's still like that, right? but more of a threat to them than to us. The sea is where you could easily die of thirst while you're surrounded by water. When previous generations, including the generation to which John, that John was a part of, to which John wrote, when previous generations thought of the sea, it wasn't the beach vacation that came to mind. <laughs> It wasn't Destin that came to mind or Myrtle, you know, no. That's not what came to mind for them. Steve Lawson in his book uh, titled Heaven Help Us, he, he writes this, quote, To the ancient peoples the sea was frightful and fearsome, an awesome monster, a watery grave. They had no compass to guide them in the open sea. On a cloudy day their ships were lost without the stars or sun to guide them. Their frail ships were at the mercy of the ocean's fearsome, angry storms. The loss of human life in the sea was beyond calculation. So the sea represented a vast barrier for nations, continents, and people groups. The great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon in uh, Morning and Evening, if you look it up, he said this about this verse, Revelation 21.1. Listen to what Spurgeon said about Revelation 21.1. There must be a spiritual meaning here. In the new dispensation, there will be no division. The sea separates peoples from one another. To John and Patmos, the deep waters were like prison walls. That's interesting. John wrote from Patmos, an island, surrounded by the sea, and he was isolated. To John and Patmos, the deep waters were like prison walls, shutting him out from his brethren and his work. 
There shall be no such barriers in the world to come. Spurgeon says, Leagues of rolling waves lie between us and many a kinsman whom tonight we prayerfully remember, but in the bright world to which we go there shall be unbroken fellowship for all the redeemed family. And then he says, In this sense there shall be no more sea. So I remain hopeful for some large bodies of water that could accommodate our beach vacations in the new earth. You know, the Bible does speak of a, you know, same passages. Pretty impressive river that flows from the throne of God with the trees on both sides, you know, the, the tree of life. And I've never seen a river that didn't go somewhere. Paul Bunyan, there's a Paul Bunyan story about a circular river. He straightened it out with his axe, but that's the only one I ever saw, ever read about. In your Bible, at Revelation uh, 21 22, somewhere in, in your Bible, you might see a cross reference to Ezekiel 47, because the language of Ezekiel 47 is so similar, and it seems to speak of the new earth as well. Now, let me read, let me read some. Then he, isn't an angel, I think it's a pre-incarnate Christ, says, Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. Does that sound familiar? And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea, uh, Ezekiel says. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature in the swarms will live, and there will be very many fish, for this water goes there, and the, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so that everything will live where the river goes. Well, how do you reconcile John and Ezekiel? Because John says there be no sea. Ezekiel, if we're talking about the same thing, as appears that we are, it, we're, the river flows into the sea, and it turns the, sea, the salt water fresh. Well, one way we could put them, reconcile them is say that John is indicating that there will be no more sea as we know it. That's one of the things you could say. No sea as we know it. Undrinkable, <laughs> poison with salt, uh, dangerous for living things. No more of the terrible things that the uh, ancients associated with the sea. No more loved ones sailing off, never to be seen again. No more giant sea creatures that want to eat you. So that's why I remain hopeful about a beach vacation on the New Earth. But why am I afraid to ask? I don't mean I'm actually afraid, fearful of an honest question about the Scripture. I've given a sermon to it here. I've invited you to think about it, especially if you're you know, like a little disappointed when you think, no, see, oh, I, here's what here's the sense on which I'm afraid. I am extremely wary of letting the issue become anything close to questioning the goodness of God or the glory of the forever future. You know, making here's what it feels like to me: making too big of an issue about whether there's beach or no beach is to be like the guy applying for the job uh, and he asks about the vacation policy during the job interview. Uh, the guy who asks about what's your, well, you know, in the job interview, asks about personal days off. How many personal days do you get? 
I don't want to be, I wouldn't want to be that guy if I was interviewing with a search committee for a pastor. Far less would I want to be that guy with God. I mean, it's heaven, for goodness sake. It's, it's the reunion of heaven made new with an earth made new for all eternity. Per, and this goes back to the previous sermons. Perfect justice among men, sealed off from evil forever resurrected bodies that never grow old, never die, no more cancer, no more diabetes, no more Alzheimer's, no more addictions. Not just restored bodies, but made better than they ever were bodies. Perfect environment for resurrected bodies. Previously unexperienced depth of fellowship, communion, relationship with God. And like where we were last week, reunion with Reunion and fellowship with other believers, other, other redeemed, the ones we know and miss now, the ones we haven't met yet. And against that backdrop, I would really be absolutely afraid to say, you know, Lord, I, I've got a little problem with this no longer being any sea. Uh, we've always loved our vacations at the beach and it's supposed to be heaven and I'm supposed to be blissful. I don't know if I could be eternally blissful and miss out on all that. I came across a comic that captures my fear perfectly. It's titled, did, did we able to get that? Yes, there you go. It's titled, Why We Almost Didn't Have Cats. You see that? Cat wants to think about it, you know. And it, you can take it down. And that makes us think about not just the promise of the new heavens and new earth, but the alternative. And it's just like Noah. It's just like Noah. What we have been offered by God is a way of escape from his righteous judgment of all flesh. See or no see. The alternative is a lake of fire, Jesus tells us, that was intended, made for the devil and his angels, but there's plenty of room for any human being who refuses to enter the ark. And even and the ark is Christ, of course. The ark is symbolic as well. Do I believe that there's an actual ark? Yes, of course, but it's also a symbol for Christ and salvation in Him. So I'm getting on the ark, no questions asked. <laughs> While the door is open. And a lot of people have noticed that in the flood account in Genesis, it was God who closes the, it's God who closes the door. It wasn't, Noah didn't close the door. It was God. Genesis 7, they went into the ark with Noah and his family and the animals. Two and two of all flesh in which there was a breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Wasn't, wasn't Noah's job to judge wasn't Noah's prerogative to decide who's in and who's out. It isn't mine. That's God's alone. The righteous judge of all mankind. 
Only God can judge sinners. Only God can forgive sins. And Genesis 7 says the, the Lord shut the door. He shut Noah in. And of course in shutting Noah in and his family, he shut, every, shut everyone else out. Jesus says, and the flood came. The flood came and took them all away. Thus God saved Noah and his family. By the way, he saved the earth. Brought the family over to a new earth, the old one having been destroyed. God gave life to all who believed. And it's a picture of salvation in Christ, is it not? The only name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus spoke of himself as the way, the truth, and life. He spoke of himself as the door, in fact. He's the door. Enter the ark. Save your life before God shuts the door and the judgment comes. While there is breath in their bodies, we pray for those who have not yet come aboard. Speaking figuratively, right? Symbolically. While there's breath in my body, I seek to persuade people to enter the ark of God's salvation in Christ. Because I don't know when God shuts the, will shut the door. I don't know when God will shut the door. But I know it's open now. I know it's open now. And I also know that there will come a day when he does shut the door. There comes a time in every life when God will say this night your soul is required of you and the time for prayers and the time for, for persuasion will be passed. And if your life has been a long string of no's to God's offer of His own beloved Son as your Savior, as your Lord, eventually He takes your no as final and He closes the door. But as you live and breathe, we are not there yet. We're not there yet. And Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's, that's what you call good news. <laughs> If you have any sense of our, you know, our moral culpability before God, our sin against God, that, that's, that's good news. And see or no see. Beach vacation or no beach vacation, it's the best, it's the best news you've ever heard. It's the best offer you, you've ever been made. And it's the best deal you'll ever get. 
Father, uh, we look forward to the time when all of these wonderful things will be a reality, when our faith will be sight. We look forward to the completion of our salvation for the redemption of our bodies. We look forward to all of it, Lord. We ask you to, we, we ask your patience, we ask your continued patience. Because we know you desire for none to perish, but to, for all to come to repentance. And yet, Lord, we pray as you have instructed us at the same time, come, Lord Jesus. And we do, Lord. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.